Hello and welcome to another episode of Is This Just Fantasy? I'm your host, Geordie Bailey. And I'm the guy who will stick at something even though it's clearly not going to work out, Duncan Nickel. Duncan, are you starting to have doubts about this, this podcast we're doing? Hey, I'll stick at it. Yeah, but Dad didn't answer my question. You said, like, a lost cause? like. Geordie, just because something's a lost cause doesn't mean it's not worth fighting for. Wow, Duncan, you just summarised the entire moral of David Gemmell's legend, which is what we're talking about this week, isn't it? It is indeed. This is my pick. Every two weeks, uh, we alternate picking books for our book club, and then we discuss them here. And we invite you to read the book and come along to yourselves with your own ideas. And you can reach out to us on our Instagram at Is This Just Fancy Podcasts and share your views on the books as well. Oh, we also have a Gmail, Is This this Just Fancy Podcast at gmail.com. You can also reach out to us there. And we'd love to hear your ideas on Legend or even David Gimmel because he's written a lot of books, Geordie. A lot, a lot of books. Yeah, I got that impression. So, Duncan, uh, in the past two weeks, have you read anything else? I actually have. This wasn't the uh, this wasn't a particularly long read. No, not Legend. That so I actually squeezed in. I didn't squeeze in another book. I actually squeezed in two comics uh, that I enjoyed quite immensely. Mm. I read the first section of House of Trades Dune uh, comic adaptation. Cool. So this is a comic adaptation of the prequel book written by Frank Herbert, who wrote the original Dune's Son. Um, I, all I've got to say is. I think it's a more enjoyable read of the comic than I had reading that section of the book. It's condensed things. I think it gets to the point faster than I... So, so far... Wait, so yeah? it's an adaptation of literally just a bit before they get to Arrakis? No, 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 no. So, oh, going to the of Dune or here. Uh, so, Frank Herbert wrote six Dune books. Now, his son and another author, I believe it's called Kevin J. Anderson, is sure. the man's name. I'm sure that's they all have then they then expanded on the Dune universe by writing, I believe, two prequel trilogies, a sequel duology, uh, two midquel duologies, and are now doing a full-on spin-off. Yeah, thing. they wrote about um, robot wars, right? Like not the show they, where you make robots wrestle each other, but like the Butlerian Jihad. Yeah, exactly. So that's the like distant past prequel trilogy. This comic is an adaptation of the first book in their immediate prequel trilogy, sometimes called the House Trilogy. Okay. Called, it's House of Trades, House Harkonnen, and then finally House... Um, what's the Royal House called? Con... Can we know? It's not House Padashah? I'm shrugging my shoulders, mate. Oh, I right, actually have He's cannot a Padashah recall Emperor. at all. Whatever. Whatever. Uh, but yeah, so this House Trilogy, it starts out with um, Paul and the First June's father as a child... And we sort of follow all sort of the main characters from Dune in that kind of time frame, that one generation back. So we see Duncan Idaho while he's still on Gady Prime, that are playing at the Harkonnen. We see the Harkonnens trying to tame Dune. We see um, the sort of archaeologist individual, I can't remember their name now, who first goes to Dune and is the person who oversees the transfer from Harkonnen to Atreides rule in Dune. Um and we also see the whole plan by the Bene Gesserit to have a child via Baron Hark- Harkonnen and then marry that child off to uh, the Duke Leto. Sorry, spoiler for Dune in that bit. Um, and I actually think it, it is actually quite nice. It's, it's a nice prequel story and in the more condensed comic form, I think it works even better. But yeah, other than that, um, I also read the second volume of League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Mm-hmm. Much better than the first. Oh, cool. Um, same, same concept, except it's War of the Worlds. 
and it opens on John Carter driving the Martians from War of the Worlds off Mars. Oh. And they're actually fleeing him when they land on Earth. That's funny. And then it's... That's funny. Okay. Yeah. I like that. <laughs> I read the first volume and I was like, this is fine, but like not, you know, it doesn't change my life or anything. So maybe I'll give a second volume a go. That sounds fun. And finally, I did finish uh, Star Wars Death Troopers. Well, I don't need to know anything about that. No, you really don't. Cool. I liked it. Okay. And uh, yeah, what have you been reading, mate? Um, well, I, I've read a book and I've also had an important fantasy experience. Uh, my important fantasy experience is that I took part in a very important aspect of the fantasy genre, and that is I went to go see um, The Ring Cycle, um, Wagner's opera, specifically the first part, um, uh, Rheingold, and it was good, it was good, I enjoyed it, I, I did, I got, a, I'm not gonna lie, I did nod off a few times, but that was because I was up editing the previous episode all night, and <laughs> I was a bit sleepy come the morning, but I, I did enjoy myself. I don't think anything could demonstrate sort of the difference in our kind of like literary canon that I'm here like, yeah, I read two comics and a Star Wars book. And you're like, yes, I saw Wagner's first section of their opera. It was very good. It's very important because it's it, the ring cycle is like super significant to the foundation of like a lot of fantasy. For example, it's a story of Siegfried, who's like the inspiration for so many dragon slayers to come which is such an important part of fantasy and also it's it's about the ring like the ring of evil and corruption and stuff which is almost certainly a big inspiration behind the lord of the rings so yeah that's wonderful you mentioned a book though what was this book i also so i I mentioned on the last episode that i was rereading um world wars Z, z z z I I feel so conflicted about how to say it because it, it is called World War Z, but I keep wanting to say World War Z. Anyway, and <laughs> I, I don't know if you know this, Duncan, but Max Brooks has not written just that one book, although he's not that prolific as a writer. He's also written, you know, The Zombie Survival Guide. He also wrote a mm-hmm. series of short stories about zombies. But a couple of years back, I noticed that he just released a new book, and I was like, oh, man, I love world war z i better give this a try and i read the blurb of that book and i was like wait this 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 is about bigfoot that sounds really really stupid um so i did not i didn't get it then i was like i I, this is embarrassing i can't do this but boy howdy is this book it's just phenomenal it has this great sense of perspective because it's all taken from like one woman's diary during these like events so it has this great sense of building tension all throughout the book um it has this wonderful like very person-led focus like you really capture the voice of the protagonist and it's about like you know humanity devolving back to a more primal state as they need to defend themselves from uh from from the dangers of nature so is it kind of like trying to make a point on like sort of civilization and how we've maybe you know is it kind of like a good thing oh yeah we need to get back to basics or is it a bit like oh, actually there's some pros and cons there it's not like nihilistic in that way it's more saying that we don't live in a context where we understand nature properly you know it's about like people can go out to experience nature but they don't have the experience of actually living alongside it um 
you know, how many people are actually prepared for a disaster to strike, you know, how many people have um, a fire extinguisher in their car, how many people have bear spray in their house, things like that. I'm going to tell you, mate. Fundamentally, though, hand on heart here. It has never even occurred to me to carry bear spray with me. Well, you you, lo- you don't live in a country that has bears, and it's illegal in the UK, so that's a good reason. But, yeah, so it's, um, it could very easily be, like, porn for survivalists and, like, doomsday preppers. But it's actually a mm. lot more reasonable than that, to, uh, to, oh, to an extent. I would certainly say there were elements of that in World War Z. Yeah, you, exactly. In terms you, of... He's expanding on a lot of his ideas in there. Oh, that sounds absolutely amazing, mate. There's also one chapter which is just, like, instructions on how to build a spear from scratch. I do. I have a real mixed feeling because I love watching sort of more, like, survivalist shows. But I'm firmly on the full knowledge and comprehension that I would just probably die. I do not have it in me, I don't think. The competency or the, the sense of focus to pull it off. I take it you feel differently? Uh, well, I like camping. <laughs> but no, I mean, absolutely, like, I only exi- I only get to do hang- hiking under certain contexts. And it was definitely something I was thinking a lot was reading this book was, well, this is a good point. Like, I'm not prepared for a sudden disaster scenario. And it's all good and fun to think about, um, you know, how you'd survive when the chips were down. Um, but it would be a lot harder than you might expect. Like, I don't know how to butcher an animal you know for example anyway just to great book oh no wait one one little thing about if you bigfoot mate if anyone else also wants to enjoy good literature that kind of expands on the bigfoot myth uh, can i just recommend there is an amazing amazing comic out there where han solo and chewbacca crash on earth and chewbacca that is not is an amazing comic book i've read it it sucks <laughs> it actually is it's quite poor it's very bad anyway <laughs> um there are se- the worst part of the worst part of um, the devolution book. It actually is a section where he tries to present like reasonable evidence for the existence of Bigfoot, and I hate that because Bigfoot's not fucking real, um, and it's stupid to try and convince yourself that he is. Um, he has to do it for the sake of his book, but you can tell that you can tell he's a little bit embarrassed to be trying to make these arguments. It's stupid. I mean. I don't. I'm not as familiar with the Bigfoot myth as maybe because it's you know it's not anywhere near where I live. Um, but mm. to me, I, I just think it's compared to the lot less monster, which is just so not real. It's almost yeah. Kind of like interesting. we know it's a con. It was yeah. literally introduced by a guy who was discovered to be a liar, and people still believe in it. I, I remember watching a um, great documentary on it. This woman was on who was saying, I, I was just driving back from in my car late from the pub and I just saw, and I saw it. I saw this massive backside. It, it looked like a, like an overturned boat out in the lake. And I'm just there like, <laughs> I think you've just answered your own question there. Yeah. So we've read Legend by David Gemmell. Um, yeah. David Gemmell is a fairly, he was, sorry, a very prolific British author. He sadly passed away in 2006. Um, he wrote, his first book was Legend, came out in 1984. So this is a cut off the 80s. Uh, I don't really know what context I need to give out to the 80s. We still haven't quite hit the epic fantasies of Dark Tower, Wheel of Time, Mazalan. That's not quite really come about yet. That was more early 90s or very late 80s. Uh, to be honest, this is still more that time where I think like 
Tor were pushing out all their Conan pachets, you know, still that kind of heroic mm. fantasy sword and sorcery was still very much making up a lot of the fantasy market, not that there weren't other works. And its DNA is definitely inside this book. Oh, hugely. What's this book about, Dunk? It's about a siege, Geordie. Yeah, that's it. Um, It's about a siege. It's about a real big army attacking a real big castle. I have a soft spot for sieges in literature. Um, I'm, Me too. I read Sharp's Company at a very young age. And in general, when we look at like fantasy book series, uh, particularly, I know like Game of Thrones springs to my mind, but there's so many examples. Uh, when they do a siege, I tend to really like it because it's often a really good environment for the characters to be desperate up against the wall you know but also for it to like last a long time and like you get a lot of chances for characters to interact and talk without it being like in the middle of a battle yeah i think it's a really nice mechanism uh for sort of exploring character work exploring character work is a good term so let's let's crack onto this and as to say that you're right to say this book is about a siege because the characters in the book are fun but they're not exactly you know they're not exactly deep and they're not meant to be. They're meant to be fun, slightly pastiche characters. You know, it, it feels more like a World War II movie than does a fantasy novel at times. Oh, I can definitely get that vibe. It's definitely, mm. I felt, this is more to make you go, hooray, when the heroes are winning, and to finish on a really kind of, like, positive note. Mm-hmm. While still, I don't think, completely turning away from the, like, the horrors of what's going on. But to still keep you on that very upbeat track of Somewhat. we band together, people. Yeah, th- this is exactly the sort of book which I feel gives lip service to War is Hell, but fundamentally is a pro-war book. Definitely. Which I personally believe most media that features war is, right? Yeah, I think the majority of war literature is pro-war. By its nature, yeah. because it shows it as exciting and heroic and that's something that gives meaning, which this book certainly does. It can say like, oh, it's horrifying and it's terrible and you watch the people you love around you die, but it makes you a man, damn it. Okay, Jordy, do you want to just actually come out quickly? Because I'm actually not sure where you stand. Did you like this book? Yeah, I do like this book. This is a good book. Good. Oh, thank great. goodness. I was so worried because I really worried that he was, you were building towards like, uh, I have some real issues with this one. I'm like, oh, I had fun. I do fun. have some real issues with this one, but it's a good book. <laughs> I, had, I had a lot of fun reading this. Um, my reading experience of this was actually, so I actually read the first prologue in the first chapter months and months and months ago. And I don't know what happened. I got distracted. Something else came up, probably a book reading for book club. And I kind of put it down um, and I wanted to return to it. So I actually picked this book up from chapter two and like just quickly flicked through the first two chapters mm-hmm. again. Um, and it took me about a week to read the first third. Then it took me about three days to read the next third. And then I read the final third in a day. That's weird. That's very strange. Um, I don't know what to say to that, actually. <laughs> I, I found it because it was an escalation in my excitement and sort of my buy-in. The first third, I'm there like, yeah, we're building towards the siege. Is that because the, the first half of the book is about the preparation for the siege and the second half is the siege? I think so. I think that's sort of the end of it. By the time we actually got to the action side, all the pieces were set up and they were clashing hmm. together. I was just flowing from sort of fight to fight to fight. It, uh, I think there was such a nice bit of time. Okay, she does time at the night for you to all to breathe. You breathe with the characters. <gasps> 
you, know, you have those little character interactions and you're into the next fight. Um, yeah. And my, think... uh, my experience of this book was a bit, you know, I, I, I was plodded along at a pretty standard pace. I got there when I was going to go there. But of course, as people who listened to the last episode will know, I went into this book in a bit of a sour mood because Duncan betrayed me. Duncan is a dirty traitor. And he made me read this book against my will. We were supposed to read... Alright, supposed is a strong word. It was it was pretty understood that we were going to read the next book in the Scholomance trilogy. But instead, he picked Legend by David Gemmell. So I was, like, really ready to not like this book. And in fact, all through the prologue, I was like... Why there's so many proper nouns? This is so hard to keep track of. Like, you're really throwing a lot at me. And then, a character said one word that changed everything. Someone is speaking to the sort of Chinggis Khan character in this book. Ulrich. Ulrich Wolfhead. Yeah, one weird name. Why is this guy called Ulrich? He's clearly not, like, Norse. He's, like, supposed to be Asian. Or, like, some, like, step people whatever moving on so the guy is speaking to Ulrich and he says you have conquered the city of Golgothir and I'm on the train and I sit bolt upright and I go huh because I play in a Dungeons and Dragons game run by mine and Duncan's friend Tom and Golgothir is a very important location in that world and so is Drosdel Nock, it's a really important castle. So I send, so I find a PDF of the first, the, the prologue, and I send it to Tom, and I say, Tom, do you want to explain yourself? And he went, oh, cool, you're reading the Draenei series. And it turns out it's one of his favorite series ever. And he took tons of inspiration for it when designing, like, the world I've been playing in for, like, two years. Love that. So you've basically been playing in this sandbox and didn't know where it came from. I'm glad that made you fall in love with it. I fell in love with it, I think. Yeah, so my partner's uncle actually first introduced me um, to this series. He gave me a nice big trilogy omnibus for the Draenea series. And he's the same guy who got me into the Bulgariad. So, I, you know, I trust... I had great faith in his recommendations, although very much slice of the time kind of material. Um, but what, actually, what I'm really excited about is actually um, David Gimmel. He's actually done his... So this was Legend was his very first book. His very final book series he ever wrote was a trilogy. And, uh, Georgie, do you want to have a guess what that trilogy was about? Was it about a siege? It was about a siege. Oh, man, he was coming back to do it right this time. <laughs> it's about a very particular siege. The Siege of Troy? The Siege of Troy. Hey. And I'll be honest... Like, I loved... One of my favourite books we read last year was Song of Apollo. Achilles. Um, I actually have Pat Barker's The Signs of the Girls sitting on my bookshelf to read. But the idea that David Gemmell just did a fairly straight-laced heroic fantasy take on Troy, <sighs> I'm also like, yeah, I kind of want to read that too now. Whatever time of year we did Song of Achilles last year, let's let's go back. I think it was like in autumn. Let's go back... No, it was summer because was, I was on a super long walk and it was very hot. So, yeah, next summer, we'll read David Gemmell's version of Troy. On the grounds that this coming summer, we have to read Pat Barker's The Science of the Girls. All right. Is that like the sequel to Science of the Lambs? That's a joke, but the sequel to Science of the Lambs is terrible. So, Duncan, let's, um, let's quickly cover 
we've said this is about a siege, and and we kind of joked that that's like all there is to it, because that kind of is all there is to it. It's a very simple story. It's the greatest army in the world fights the greatest fortress in the world. Um, but really, it's about a an outnumbered band of you know, plucky, overwhelmed army making this heroic stand in, in a seemingly pointless, bloody defense. And it's mostly about the character dynamics of um, those people defending that wall. Absolutely. It's not... To be honest, you're only interested in whether or not the siege is going to last or not from the point of the characters you're introduced to. There's no real, like, oh, God, I hope this army doesn't attack the whole kingdom. That doesn't matter, yeah. to be honest. You're like, nah, we're just interested in what happens to these people here today. And I think they're a fairly, I'd say, stock yeah. bunch. But they're also, I think, written good enough. Yeah, yeah, like, they have fun interactions. Now, here's a little test for both of us, Duncan. I often give yeah. you tests in this podcast. This one I'm going to participate in as well. So... We're going to take it in turns to name a character, give a one-sentence description, and whoever runs out of characters first loses. You can go first. All right. Oh. Yep. I'm going to take the easy one. Druss. He's the legendary old war hero coming out of retirement for one last hurrah. Then mine will be Wreck, uh, the actual hero of the story, the, like, proper protagonist starts from one place ends up in another place um he's like he's supposed to have this character arc where like he goes from being a coward to a brave leader good use the word supposed to um i'm gonna say servitar the albino prince not called elric not called elric for sure (laughs) who who is going through a crisis of faith not like elric yep uh vintar his mentor Pretty boring. Obi-Wan. That's it. <laughs> um, Bowman, the outlaw... I thought call him outlaw king. He's not really that. It's just the leader of an outlaw band yep. who, once again, is... He's in it for the money, uh, but he, maybe he's not. Uh, then there's Hogan, the guy who argues with him a lot because he's very straight-laced and Bowman is not straight-laced. That is the extent of his personality. There's Orin who is the initial commander of the fortress, yep. who starts out very... He's the privileged man who's got to the top and isn't actually very competent at his job. But damn it, he's realised this now and he's going to try and do better and get the men's respect. I did, I, I did like that, actually. There I is uh, Gilad, um, who's this up-and-comer officer who starts off as like a peasant and then rises through the ranks to like become a proper soldier. There is uh, Viria... Yeah, I would have Varai? said Varai, but I, but honestly, I wouldn't. I, I do not fault you for not being able to pronounce anyone's names in this because I listened to the audiobook and I can't really pronounce anyone's names either. Excellent. So Varai is, well, she's the love interest. Yeah, yes. Um, Does she have? But she's... any other personality aside from Brad? She is the. She is the strong warrior woman who is going to make her stand on the front line. Damn it to society's expectations. Yeah, sure. Really, really, you did. You really pulled it off, you know. Um, hmm. There's uh, there's Kesa, the only other woman in the book. She is something else, huh? David Gemmell. <laughs> yeah, you really know how to write female characters, don't you? 
you have her shoot a bow <laughs> a couple of times and be like, she's a great warrior. She will kill zero people in this book and will become a nurse immediately. Yes, and I'm not going to lie, her, um, when we finally get her backstory, whoa. Yeah, yeah, good job, Gamal. Um, your turn, Duncan. Um, uh, oh, she becomes a nurse to uh, Calvar Sin. The fuck he is, is Calvar the... Sin? <laughs> Calvar Sin, is he not the, um, he is the surgeon? Oh, yeah, that guy, of course, <laughs> yeah. He is the surgeon, and he is just like... Don't waste your time on the ones that are going to die, and why are we at this bloody war? Technically, that was Virai who did that, but yeah, fair enough. Over to you. They Oh yeah, both women of this book become nurses. Oh, damn. Anyway, um... Uh, Bregan? Brogan? Not Brecken, like I thought his was. Uh, he's a peasant. He's Gilad's friend. Um, he's, he's, he's like his Samwise, I guess. That's it. Okay, this is a character that's stuck in my head, despite he has a very, very, very small part... And that is Corinne. The fuck is Corinne? Is he the, like, so, t- tribal leader guy? No. Corinne is, I think, is a baker. And we get a very short sort of aside. Oh, yeah. When his wife is like, Shufa Corinne, we should be fleeing. He's like, I must do the honourable thing. And then his wife, as soon as he walks out the door, is like, yeah, I'm I'm off. And then, like, takes the money and doesn't even bother to close the door. And he dies in the next chapter. Um, and he dies in the next chapter. Quite, I did quite like that, though, because he dies, um, we're with the surgeon, mm. and he's trying to save a man's life, and then he fails, and he goes, poor Corinne. Yeah. Well, at least he has a wife that will mourn him. <laughs> and I was like, I don't know if I'm meant to cry or laugh. Yeah. Thank you. So, uh, um, Ulrich, running out. he's the bad guy, yep. he's Genghis Khan, Chengis Khan, excuse me. He's very, he's, I liked his, um, his sort of, Honourable platitudes. Your turn, Duncan. Ugh. I I'm really struggling here. There's something like there are these hill tribesmen that join yes. them, but I can't remember the leader's name. I'm like I think they were like the south the Salvihi the Thahuhu the Salvihu Tatuli. Thank you. Um, but I can't remember the leader, so I think I'm going to have to bow out That's, in that's understandable. If you'd name one more person, I wouldn't have named name anyone else. Mind you, I think we should did okay, considering. Um... Olgie! 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 Who the fuck is Olgie? Olgie is one of Ulrich's commanders and the one who fires the fateful arrow. Well, actually, that's genuinely impressive that you were able to remember that. So well done. I concede. Good job, Duncan. Oh, Yeah. This would just want to know that we both have cheat seats here. and Yeah, we've just been looking at Wikipedia pages and umming and ahhing for no reason. Right, so that's the cast. Definitely some main players in, I believe, I would say Druss, Wreck, Orin, and maybe Serbitar. I'd say get the most character work. I would agree with you on that. Um, I would say Servitar gets way too much time, actually, considering that the main characters are absolutely Wreck. And Druss. Druss is the really enjoyable, tough, older guy, past his prime, making a final stand character. And Wreck is your much more straightforward protagonist. And then there's just Servitar at the edges, having his own problems, taking up so much oxygen in this book. It's not the issue is that they take up a lot of oxygen per se. It's the fact that his personal kind of crisis, I don't think ties as well into the, the siege 
as yeah. everyone else. Like, Rec at is least the... Rec has to prove himself and like change and develop. That's the point of his character arc, and that ties in directly to his performance in the siege. Just whole character arc is the fact that he's he's doing this siege, knowing that this is probably his last hurrah, and he's like. This is how I want to go out. Yeah, the, the siege is a metaphor for Druss's life. Like, it's about, like, this defiant stand. Whereas Sevatar's sort of crisis of faith, it's like, it's a hopeless situation, I think. Or is it, I do my duty regardless? Yeah. I think his plot is, is genuinely, it's him, it's partly, I think it's him actually getting over the, he's like, thinks he's the best. And the siege is to teach him he's not. I genuinely don't know what the point was because I just kept losing focus in all the chapters where the monks were talking. Um, I did not find them interesting. Uh, They were the hardest part of the first half of the book for sure because I didn't find their quasi-dune magic to be, you know, that convincing or enjoyable. Uh, I just wanted to get back to Druss whenever they were on a page. I spent, that could be said for a lot of this book, I just wanted to get back to Druss. He's fun. Let's talk about Druss then. So Druss... Druss is fun. Druss is fun. Druss, to be brutally honest, um, was at dangerously close to me just going, sod it, this will be my next D&D character. Yeah, I wonder why, buddy. I wonder why. (laughs) In the afterword of this book, they... I don't know if it says the same thing in yours, Duncan, but he said in the second, in the revised version of this book, which David Gemmell wrote, and we can talk about the backstory uh, at later down the line, but the second draft, he was like, the character was much more similar to Robert E. Howard's Conan. And you're like, yeah, yeah, man, of course he is. <laughs> yeah, it just, of course he's fucking Conan. He's just a, like, 60-year-old Conan who didn't become king. I, I love him so much. Yeah, uh, it's man, not. Of you do. It's not, com- and it's not the complexity. I I like the fact that he has. It's that. Um, I'm going to describe it a bit like Superman. It's that you know he has his his code, and mm-hmm. he's going to stick by it. I like watching the sorts of characters. I also enjoy characters who are. I like the look of sort of the old man who's just become. I think um, Tay Pratchett does a joke of it with his Conan knockoff character Cohen. Um, mm. He's just so good at what he does now. You know, he's been mm-hmm. at this for so long. He's survived so many battles that he's just naturally become such an expert like no one is a threat yeah, he's just almost never in any kind of real danger i like that i like the fact also that apparently he has a whole prequel trilogy so yeah i'm not really interested in reading that even though i like Dross that much because i feel like the one thing that keeps Dross vulnerable is the fact that he's 60 years old and like got arthritis and stuff so I can't really imagine how he's generating a sense of peril, considering how much butt he kicks at this age than when he's like in his twenties, you know? Yeah, but you could say that I think of any prequel work that you know you know he's gonna live. But there's yeah, but you the characters around. The thing about prequels, and most prequels suck for this exact reason, but it's not a question of whether someone lives or dies, because most characters we know are not going to die. We know how many pages are left in a book, you know? No. Like, in this book, you're like, maybe Druss can die, but I know it has to be at least closer to the end of this book. He's going to be fine for a while yet, you know? I can definitely bow to that. I would like to talk a little bit more about the character of Wreck, because I did not like him. You didn't like Wreck. Now, No. I wouldn't say that I liked Wreck. Wreck, to me, was serving a function. And I think he served that okay. function. Um, okay. What function is that? To not be Druss. 
I mean, sure, yeah, I get that. Can you be more specific? Because he's a lot like Druss in at least some regards, in that he's good at fighting, and he holds the line, and he's extremely brave. He's not Druss because he has to be young and in love and a more stereotypical hero. The thing that's supposed to set him apart from all the other heroes who are exactly like him is the fact that he's a coward which is introduced in the first two chapters. It's the most interesting thing about him, and it's the thing which David Gamble did not follow through on. Best Man is not no, a coward. He's not. No. In the very th- in the, like, the third chapter, he bravely mm-hmm. rushes to someone's defence, and then yep. in the fifth chapter, he stands his ground against out- being outnumbered by a group of outlaws, and you're just like, okay, you've overcome your cavernous. Didn't see much yeah, of that, he's... but you're done. Exactly. Plot arc. The thing about... The whole point that he serves from a practical perspective in the role is he becomes the new Earl who oversees the fort. So he gets complete power and control over the fort. And that's a really bad idea because his test should be he gets the chance when no one is telling him what to do and he gets the chance to run away. And he has to at that, that moment decide, no, I am going to stand and I am going to fight. But he's already been standing and fighting long before he got the chance to turn it down. And when a chance comes along again, it's not, I'm a coward, I'm going to run away. It's, I'm going to kill myself, um, which he gets persuaded not to do. And that's not connected to his character arc. You keep saying character arc. What we got was a, a classic setup for a character arc. And then it just stopped in chapter yeah. three. Yeah. He, I don't, just did not follow through on that. No, and I think it's a shame because I think there were opportunities. I particularly think with Wreck, uh, there's a point after the loss of some of the other characters. Uh, spoilers, not everyone makes it through the, this book. Where I Which think is to be expected. I think you could definitely have it where he's at the back. He's lost his core reason for why he first showed up here, and he should be. We should have internal monologue. We should have him wrestling with himself to run away. Mm-hmm. Or have him run away and then come back, which is another classic. That's like, you know, The Magnificent Seven. You have a character who runs, and then he changes his mind, and he comes back to help save the day. I love how our solution to this uh, lack of character arc is, you could have done any of the cliches. Come on, we would have been happy. <laughs> I mean, a cliche is a cliche, but some, some cliches are better than others. Like, he, I mean, it would fulfill his arc. That's what we're after. It doesn't have to not be cliched. Yeah, no, you're right. I would rather have a complete character arc, even if it was cliche. And weirdly, this book, I think I would have loved to have seen a cliche, another cliche in this book. Like, I felt a tone was set where my expectations were just, not lowered, but angled differently. Um, where I think, like, cliches like that, I would have, I was just enjoying myself and the writing enough. I'm like, yeah, I don't care. Yeah, like the, the the vibe of this book is that it's um it's a familiar story told quite well, you know. It's if I had to compare this to one other piece of media, I would compare this to Sahara by Humphrey Bogart, which was like a a, a an American World War Two propaganda movie. You know, it takes place in the desert. It's about um, you know, it's about this troop of Allied soldiers surrounded by Nazi troops who make a defiant stand and they know there's no real chance but if only they can just hold them back for a little while and yeah 
it's it, it, it's it's all cliche. That's a, that was a movie made in nineteen forty three or something, and this is a book written in nineteen eighty four. It's really about trying to imbue this sense of grit to it. I'm sort of hearing what you say. I don't know if I fully agree. I think it's all about for me. It's actually feel the opposite. It's not the grit that carries me through sort of the cliches of it. It's actually the that's gonna sound a bit weird uh the whimsy the adventure the come on let's go you know like, i mean yeah i no, i just don't i mean that's I, I think i get what you're trying to say but i think what you're actually getting at is the grit like you're you're talking about is the the repartee the gallows humor scenes you know the scenes where people make these pivotal decisions to make a stand um but but in those scenes they're not it's not a question of whimsy it's like well there's nothing else in my life. There's no reason not to make this stand here, you know? It's not about them saying, like, oh, I must do or die for the sake of country. It's like, whatever, man. It's got to be done, so I'm going to do it. It's the, it's the camaraderie in those scenes. Sure. And you know, I think I confused your use of the word grit for maybe the use of the word grim. Yes, and I think there is an I... important difference there. Because this isn't a grim book. Oh, most certainly not. And I really enjoyed... Um, we talked about those the main characters a little bit, but the the little side characters, you know, throughout this book, particularly once the siege gets going, you have these tiny moments, and they're not really even that well signposted in the text. Like, it's not, don't think there's normally even a, a break in the page, where we'll just cut to, to like, completely new side characters. Mm, yeah. Who are just footmen. We even do it with the enemy army at one point. Yes, that's a really and good bit. The really small moment, and the characters basically always die at the end. But it's normally <laughs> just a small moment of the the people at the bottom going, "We're not just the legend now, but we're going to stand by him anyway." Yeah, exactly. Even if we die, even if we die, buddy. And then a paragraph later, they're dead. Yeah, like there's a scene where like Druss is fighting alongside a guy, and a guy, and, and a lancer tries to spear Druss, and a guy like hurls himself in the way because he knows that Druss is more important to defending the wall than he is. Really small, but yet very powerful moments. It is, yeah. Like, this book now, is never going to make me cry, but it, it did make me it did make me go like, yeah, that was stirring, you know. I felt something there. Yeah, and I think it's actually, it was those moments, and probably the character of Druss, to be honest, sure, yeah. that I think kept this book above a waterline. Um, I'm going to reference something, Tordy. Okay. And I want to know what your take is, because when I first started reading this book, I had a fear, a pit of my stomach. I was like, oh no. Jordy wasn't particularly keen to read this to begin with. Mm. And I think I've picked something quite similar to Malice by John Gwynn. I can see why you would bring that book up. Yes. So, uh, people don't know, we discuss uh, Malice by John Gwynn. The first in his faith in the fallen season last year. Please do go back and listen to that. It's a good episode. Uh, book club session. Audio is um, not great, but it's a good episode. Exactly. We personally didn't particularly like the book. We felt that it just landed on the cliches too much. Mm-hmm. The characters were just not there. I felt. I think I described it as sort of a bit paper mache, a bit black and white. The line works there, but it hasn't been coloured in. It was That's imbued right. with enough life. Wonderful. And I had a fear that this is going to be the same. Despite it having some of the similar sort of cliches and maybe kind of more stock characters, mm-hmm. but David Gemmell brings a colour into the shorter, very helpful, Book of Legend. Mm. And I think which just completely sets it apart and kept it above the time of being done. I think that's a good and apt comparison, Duncan, but it is like there's, there's 
it's a sturdy book, you know, it stands up to scrutiny in a lot of ways, like, take a given scene, you understand the point of that scene, you know why it's in the book, you learn things about the characters, even if they're not that complex, he's not trying to write complex characters, he's trying to write characters that feel real, and they do, except for the women. I knew this was coming. Yes. Yeah, you picked a book from 1984, Duncan. You wanted to see what can we learn about the fantasy genre in 1984. And we have learned something, Duncan. Women aren't people yet. So midway through uh, this week, my partner asked me, you know, how's the book going? What do you think? Mm. And um, I answered very, in very short form, just went, I'm enjoying it. But I'm really having to work hard to think how I'm going to articulate my thoughts about how David Gemmell's written women. Yeah. Because it's, if you want to, if we're, if we're doing that lovely graph of like time um, sure. and how well the characters are being written, we definitely have moved on from the 1930s yeah. and Robert E. Howard. It's 50 years later. How is he, and he's inspired by Conan, that's quite clear. How has he moved on from characters like. You know, Olivia, or Baylet, or from our podcast, Valeria. How do these two women, the only two, how do they differ? I think, firstly, from a perspective on the author, I think that David Gimmel, to me, is has his heart in the right place and is showing incompetence yes. more. I think that is somewhat true. Yeah, I think he probably thought he was doing a great job. Doesn't mean that he did a great job. And frankly, I don't think his intentions matter that much. He's absolutely trying to write a pair of strong female characters in the, you know, capital S, capital F, C. God, dyslexia. Ugh. Wait, exactly. He's trying to write these strong characters. What he fails to do is... He writes them strong in a very traditionally masculine way Mm -hmm. and then immediately robs that by putting them in incredibly traditionally uh, feminine roles as nurses. And Um, more specifically as sexy nurses with short skirts. Yep. Yep. He does. He ties both of them into sexual relationships to the leading men. Yep. They have very little agency. Mm Mm-hmm. I... Maybe a little bit more with Varay or Varai, but they don't, despite the fact that technically she, no, even Varai, she gets orders from her father to deliver a message. And then there's a bit in this book where Rek, uh, they marry. Yep. And then Rek gets a letter addressed to the Earl. Yep. Um, who used to be her father. Yep. He's and dead. he opens it and he goes, I'm the Earl now. I get to read his post. And she gets upset. Mm-hmm. And Rhett goes and uh, strikes her. Punches her and... in the face. Knocks yes. her clean off her feet. Good Fuck. job, man. Literally, literally not even living up to the Conan level. Like, like, come on. To it's be fair, he doesn't it... call her a hussy at any point. But I don't remember him ever giving one of his romantic interests a right hook. And what the so bad about it is that David Gimmel does not demonise Wreck or reprimand him in any way for no, this. No, he in actually fact, does he gets not apologise. Like, he doesn't apologise. He gets told to apologise. Twice. The priests are like, you should apologise for that. And I was sort of thinking, 
good, good, excellent. Someone's calling him out on his, un- you know, his atrocious behaviour. Yeah. Well done. That's good. This could be character growth. And then he proceeds not to. No. And nothing comes of it. No. And Verai just goes later. She apologises to him. Yes. She I does. was so angry at this point. This actually made me, I had to put the book down for a bit. And it generally was the bit where I completely shifted from Rec to being like, I don't think I like you. You're serving a role. Good for you. I'm going to like Druss. Yep. He's clearly not that great a person, but at least I can enjoy his company. Yeah. Rec, you're an <laughs> asshole. My last two notes are, at a certain point, I stopped taking notes. Chapter 14, this wedding is a sham. I object. Chapter 15, Varai is 19, Wreck is almost 30. Grim stuff. Yes, exactly. It, oh, flipping out, it's so unpleasant and it it doesn't need, it does not need it. You could do this scene where Varai is upset that to like, because the thing is, she's like, Wreck, what, what are you doing? Like, that's my father's role. And you could do this very differently. You could have Wreck be a nice human being and be like, no, like, you know, I'm, I, I've got the, I've got to really step up because mm-hmm. obviously you can't manage it. You've not lived there your whole life and know it way better than I. I'm a commoner <laughs> from the background, but I married you. So I'm the Earl. Yeah. Sod that. Um, or you could even do it. Maybe um, he could, A, not hit her. And then B, afterwards, actually take someone's advice and apologize. Someone could say something to him and be like, excuse me, that's not good, which yeah. they do. Bit of internal oh yeah no i realized that was inappropriate of me i was being a dickhead oh and then he could go and apologize and then i could have moved on but none of that happens it's done in the worst way so yeah we've learned something new about the 1980s women aren't people yet i don't really want to get into the other one she's even worse like an absolute prop I barely noticed that she sort of just subtly appeared in the story. I even had to flick back to realise when she was introduced. I'm like, when? You, you're getting enough attention. When, when were you There's brought up? There's a weird, really weird moment where he says, where Bowman goes to Druss, I'm bringing a woman. Is that okay? And Druss is actually, so audience sorry at this moment, he says like, yeah, man, that's okay. I don't know why you brought it up like that. Just bring her along. And then she's shown being a great archer. That's why she's introduced. She shoots all these bullseyes, she puts away her bow, and she never picks it up again. The only other scene where she fights is to carry Druss to the battlefield so he can die with his boots on, and then she dies. And this is after she tries to seduce him. Because of her daddy issues. I, I ranted enough over Rek. Could you, um, Variety, I don't want to... I think, take I think I've said enough, this? you know? I mean, it's bad. Um, she's given a very... I'm going to say red sonia like backstory Mm. um but then i think even if they just kept her on the battlefield or at the front Mm -hmm. or having her own like her last stand have her make her own last stand on her Mm -hmm. own and have it in her head you know she's if she's thinking like every person i bring down it just is one person not to inflict what happened to me when i was younger just somehow to recontextualize it that it's still about her her, like a different character you know just make her not be the the horrible embarrassment that her character is yeah i like to move away from this now i think i think we've said enough you know yeah back to the good stuff yeah um yeah why not i'm 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 i like to bring up something i'm actually quite interested in and that is um so duncan i listened to the audiobook you read the book i'd like you to try and find tell me something 
So Wreck in this book is not actually a coward because he's a berserker, right? Like he's actually full of like battle rage. And with the exception of Guts, we haven't actually had one of those yet. And they're kind of an important trope in the world of fantasy. So I think let's take the time now to talk about that as a trope. Okay. Um, I don't particularly care stupidly for this trope. I find it's most best used when it's used for comedic effect. When you have a okay. traditionally mild-mannered character All right. um, that then goes berserk on the battlefield. Mm. But in general, I think it often robs you of what I enjoy in combat scenes, which is mm-hmm. the the thinking, the planning. Okay, I see that. I'm going to do that. Make this move. Take that slice down That's here. True. Then That's dive true. under there. You tend not to get that scene. It's often like... It's often, I think, fine gets put into that almost sometimes incredible Hulk position where they're like, oh no, he's lost. He's in his rage now. He might hurt his own allies. And you're like, yeah, okay. I don't like it as a trope um, because I think it robs the interest of combat and I find it only ever seems to play out the same way, which is they get angry and then they become a bit of a threat to both sides. Wasn't Grog your favourite character in season two of Vox Machina? Oh no, Pike Pike was. But you still liked him. I still... Oh, no. I enjoy it. But that... Oh, see, that's quite interesting because that is in a visual media. So I still get to see... And you wouldn't be inside his head anyway. Exactly. Whereas Mm. if you're a written book, uh, a written combat scenes, I much prefer it when you are inside the combatant's head and -hmm. they're doing their... They're thinking through the fight as they go rather than those sort of more objective aerial view shots of the actual actions playing out, but that that is very personal taste and just how fight scenes are written. So, so I do appreciate that. So I'm really interested in Berserkers, and I have a question for you, Duncan. How yep. is Berserk spelt in this book? Because oh, the guy reading the audiobook pronounced it very strangely. It has a, it has a, a new E in it, which okay. I do not believe is traditionally put there. Where is it? I think... It like Berserk? Because he pronounced it like Bizarre. I think it is Bizarre. So he puts okay. the E just before the last K. The last K, the K. Bizarre. So yeah, so instead of A R, it's A R E at the There's end. There's no A in Berserk. Is there not? No. Okay, well, that's, then I don't know how to spell Berserk. B E R S E R K. Duncan, turn to your bookshelf and look for your copy of Berserk. All right. So I think this is a really good time to actually talk about some of the history of the word berserk and the idea of berserkers and why they're so popular. Because, interesting enough, the, the idea of berserker is often like referred to as like a barbarian. It comes from Conan, the barbarian, but you and I both know he's actually not like a berserker at all. No, no in the slightest. He's often said to have a barbarian rage, but that does not mean what everyone thinks it is. It just means that he gets angry and gets a little, like, strength boost sometimes from being mad. You know, like everybody. It's interesting, because I often, when I think back, and I may have to reread the Conan to speak with absolute authority on this point, but in my head, Conan's rage is often portrayed more as this, like, steel, icy rage than that kind of more hot, fiery rage. Yeah, it's not uncontrollable. It's like he needs that extra push and he finds Mm. it, you know? Honestly, and this is in a sort of barbarian character. Funnily enough, the closest I've seen to that um, is a barbarian character in the Crystal Shard trilogy by uh, Ravatory, Alvatory, Salvatory. Um, Wolfgar is this, um, like, it's exactly that, you know? It's just about him getting that strength boost because he's a D&D barbarian. 
But the actual word berserk is an old Norse word. Do you happen to know the meaning, Duncan? Mate, you're talking to the man who didn't even know that Wednesday was Odin, so absolutely not. Yeah. So, there isn't an A in it, and it comes from the word bear and zerk. And zerk means shirt. And we don't actually know properly what the bear means. The bear could mean bear, as in bare-chested, as in don't wear armour. Or it could mean um, bear, as in bear. That hominin, that sort of pun between bear and bear, the animal, also existed in Norse. That is a hominin that has translated into English down the line. So it could mean a cap- someone who wears a bear shirt, or it could mean someone who doesn't wear armor into a fight. And there is there are legitimate reasons to think that it actually might mean both things. It might almost be a pun, because there is a synonym for berserker called the ulf, ulfhethin, which means wolf shirt, and they also act as these aggressive warriors. Here's the interesting part. We learn about this in the Saga of the Icelanders, which are supposed to be historical, but are, like, full of monsters and stuff, so are, like, tainted with mythology. But here's the thing. Go on. There were actual Norse laws where they were like, you can't be a berserker. Stop being a berserker. That's a, that's a law you're breaking there. Which means they believed it was real. It wasn't like a mythological idea for them. They thought that someone could be a berserker. So what does that mean? What were they talking about? Because they also believed they were magic. They believed they were chosen warriors of Odin who were immune to steel and fire. You couldn't kill him with fire or steel. I'm sorry. I'm perplexed. So Mm. it was like you can't be because now I'm picturing it instead of being it being like this people are going to like a rage. Does it mean more like an elite combat group? Well, some people think that that might be the case. The reason why bear zerk might be the thing is that a bear shirt is like a really expensive item of clothing. So maybe you're a powerful warrior, you know, you're a huskal who's been given it by your Jarl to say, this guy's my representative, he's very cool and he's very strong. But some of the berserkers described in the sagas are described as being absolutely crazy and like doing things like biting their own shields. I would personally think that it's probably describing, like, someone who's gone, like, really crazy with PTSD, like the far end of it where you're completely disassociating and getting very aggressive. For me, that's probably the most likely thing, but that's just my guess. I'm not a historian. I just like history. That's oh, still interesting to know, and it does inform sort of modern perspective, because it's often, you know, we talk about, like, in, obviously, David Gemmell's work, it's portrayed as some, like any normal person who just falls under the rage, or... Mm. I'm not going to lie, my most common interpretation is that sort of D&D version where it's like a little switch you just turn on. You need to go into rage mode now. Mm-hmm. You need to unleash the Hulk. There's one other thing that's worth mentioning before moving on, and that is um, there's no mushroom. Some people will say with a lot of confidence, well, there were these warriors who took these special mushrooms that made them go absolutely crazy, and that's not true. There is no historical record of that. That is made up. Shut the fuck up. I just want to make very clear now, the, the opinions expressed by Geordie Bailey in that moment were 
Yeah, only his completely <laughs> accurate. Well, his own. Yep. And they're backed up by historical record, you absolute numpties. I cannot speak on any of these matters. Um, but I trust him. You should trust him too. What else you should trust me on is my opinions on fantasy novels. So, what else we got to say about this book? I mean... I think the only part... It's pretty good. It's a good siege. I like the way that they keep falling back and like the, they set up the stakes really well early on. You know exactly what it means for them to give ground, why they may want to give ground. Yeah. I think that worked. I think I really liked this book because um, I didn't have a map, but I didn't feel like I needed one. I knew how this was working. It's a a siege. All I need is the walls, and they're they're described very well. I really enjoyed the... I don't know. I enjoyed the simplicity, and I also actually enjoyed the fact that the uh, fantastical elements were kept relatively on the on the down low. This is a story about people. Yeah, they're subtle. Um, mm-hmm. Some people have powers, but nothing's flashy. There's no D&D-style sorcery going on. No big fantasy beasts. I agree. I like this sort of degree of sorcery. In fact, the only real fantastical beasts are inferred to be in dreams. Yeah, but that's also quite Conan-y, like creatures appearing in the dead of night. It's very Phoenix on the sword, actually, isn't it? That, like, oh, you can't prove that it really existed, but you can see, like, the traces of it left behind. I'm just going to come out and say, as someone who's a big fan of Robert E. Howard's Conan, someone who's read a lot of the Conan Pachés, if you're a person who wants more of that vibe, who wants some heroic fantasy, and you've never touched David Gimmel's work before, based purely off legend, I give it an A star. It's clearly in the same book. Okay, gotcha. So, shall we talk about the end of the book, Dan? Yes, because I have a little issue with it. So, uh, we've, we, I don't think we've given away anything that isn't a, that it would be a spoiler, but from this moment on, um, in the latter half of this episode, we're going to discuss spoilers. Uh, skip right to the last couple of minutes if you want to hear what we're reading next week, but if not, we'll see you around. So. The end of the siege. The end of the siege. The main characters have been driven back, stage by stage. Several have fallen. Um, most notably, the Rye and Drus have both fallen mm. in battle. And we get to the last moment, the good guys, they are surrounded. They are outnumbered. They're at the final wall. They've been pushed back five walls. Thousands and thousands of them are dead. And then <laughs> some plot convenience happens, and they don't die. Yeah. Ulrich... A lot of plot conveniences happen in a row. Um, ghosts show up. Which is not explained in great detail, even by the internal magic system. No. Why doesn't? Why is it only their ghosts? Why don't the enemies' ghosts show up? Why don't they get the chance to join the fight at the end, you know? It's because they're not the plucky underdogs. Magic powers only yeah. help the plucky underdogs. It is the law of literature. Um, and at the final point, there's actually, I quite like this scene. Ulrich, who is attacking this fortress, he's heard yes. that his damn nephew... Nephew. has yeah. risen up an army at home and declared himself king and all it's like mm-hmm. damn it i have to go home and sort this boy out oh but i'm so close i know what i'll do i'll break out an hourglass and i'll just sit yeah. in my tent and i'll give my army until that's done before i call the retreat and yeah i actually quite like that scene as well like i can see why someone would hate it because it's so capricious and and this uh, nephew character I don't even think he's mentioned previously in text. He might get a line of referencing. I don't... I do not think he is. And I don't think it makes a difference. No. It's simply a matter of 
David Gimmel wrote this book. I don't even think he knew what the ending was going to be when he was writing this siege, to be honest. Probably. I mean, it's described in the afterword that he literally was essentially, he essentially decided the end of the book on a coin flip. So clearly he got to the end and went, do you know what? I've fallen off my characters enough. They've suffered enough. I want them to live. Mm-hmm. Oh, Shiza, how do I sort that out? Um, yeah, because... Go away, villain. It doesn't make sense in the course of the book because it is this defiant stand. It is impossible. And and so it kind of has to be this capricious, ah, well, we're going to do ending where they, they win for unfair reasons, essentially. They get outside influence. And I'm kind of okay with that. Because there's this scene earlier in the book where Druss, where a councilman says, but Druss, you cannot stand against them. And Druss says, you can't know the future. You don't know what gonna hap- what's going to happen. What if a plague slept through his ranks? What if there was an earthquake or a hurricane? And on one hand, I like that because it reminds me of the Mongol Jap- invasion of Japan, which was thwarted twice by hurricanes, which destroyed the Mongol fleet twice on different occasions that's the reason japan was not properly conquered the point of it isn't like Drust doesn't even believe that when he says it he just says that it is the right thing to do is to make this stand so we have to do it you can't be certain about anything so the fact that it becomes this like oh well they did hold on long enough they they earned the right to stand their ground until this invasion happened which they didn't know was going to happen it's fine by me I'm fine with that. There's... It's okay. Okay, there's two bits for me, I think, then I want to zone in on. Number one is, would I have felt, and this is kind of therefore, I want to know your opinion on this, do you think you would have felt differently if the army that they're waiting, the reinforcements, you know, have Battle of Helm's Deep? Like, would it have mm. felt any more cheap if reinforcements had just shown up? Or any less cheap, sorry? Um, it's the more predictable ending, and it's like the classic way to end a story like this. Like, that's how Sahara ends. Like, you hold on enough time, and the cavalry arrives. That's the name of the trope. The cavalry arrives. And uh, the classic trope is that the cavalry's going to arrive in ten days, and they need to hold out ten days. And on the eighth day, all is lost, but then the cavalry arrives, because something they did like, prompted the cavalry to arrive a little bit earlier, you know? In a weird way, maybe it was subverted. It certainly wasn't what I was expecting. Nah. So I do have to get credit for that. I still feel it's a little... Maybe a little bit cheaper, I think. But then again, I didn't want them all to die. I think if they'd all died, I would have walked away from this bit again going, wow, wow, downer ending. Uh, If you want to talk about sheep, it has to be Verai's return. Oh. Like... Just not okay, you know? This one didn't make me feel happy, and that was the key difference. So, when the army gets saved at the last minute through just kind of dumb luck and coincidence, yeah, I felt happy mm-hmm. for them. I went, do you know what? Fuck it, you deserve a break. Varai, mm-hmm. whose Rex wife, dies early on is in the dead. siege. She is dead. We have had yeah. a funeral. We think she's buried. We've actually visited the plot that you're told she's buried mm. in. And then... Yeah. Nope. Nope. Not dead. Kind of dead. Kind of not. She got put inside a crystal block. Turns out the crystal block had healing powers, which is weird. No one implied that the crystal block was anything except for holding one sword. But 
She's in there, the wizard boy put her in the block, and she gets better. Mind you, when he takes her out, she's still dead, she doesn't have a pulse, but she just wakes up, and they live happily ever after. I don't I think she is implied to have a very, 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 very weak pulse. She has a pulse that neither he nor a doctor can find, so quite faint. Um... Also, the wizard boy who puts her in this magic crystal block to bring her back yeah. doesn't mention it in any of his internal monologue. He doesn't mention nope. it to any other character. And you know what more? Yep. I don't think Rick didn't need to not know. I don't think Rick would have done anything differently I, I, if he no, known I think she he was... does have to not know because that's quantum mechanics. <laughs> you know, like, if he knew, then it would change the future. Like, I, Oh, I... so you're saying it was uh, the wizard boy, Serbitar. Actually, in the character's name, Sevitar, knew that yeah. Rec had only one. If Rec thought she was dead, to make his last stand, so he had to do it. Yeah, maybe that's. I mean, it's explicitly said that there's only one future in which they win, and Servitor organized it so that they get that one future, a la Doctor Strange. But yeah, I guess maybe like if he thought he had something to win. Maybe he would have given up. Maybe he would have been like, okay, I can get my wife back if I surrender. Then maybe that would have caused him to break. And in the moment where he's like, I have nothing left to lose. Let's make this stand. Maybe that it does make the difference. Okay, and I have one other little point, which is yeah. it back in my head, which bothered me about this ending. And this actually goes back to the Ulrich issue. If they had surrendered the fortress and just run away, Ulrich's nephew still would have risen up and Ulrich still would have had to march his army home. At yeah. which point they could just come back to the fortress. Because then he would have been holding the fortress with his army, and he still had to march away, so he'd have to leave a part of his army behind, and 6,000 men had just arrived, and it's only defended from one side. It's not like there's six walls on the other side. It's only for defending in one direction. Nope. So, yeah. It's uh, it's literally, like, not the last crusade, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Like, if the heroes had actually done nothing the end result would have been the same. But I also do accept, that's kind of the point, that David Gemmell and Druss, for the character Druss, is making, that you can't can just not know, but you still got to fight the good fight. But it did make me go, oh dear. But then I also went, yeah, but barely anyone actually died. Druss got the ending he wanted, and none of the characters I know cared about died. In like an actual sad way. That was my only other thing. Um, with the variety coming back to life, I was a bit like, hang on, so who actually had like a sad death? And I'm like, Hogan? That's it? How did Hogan die? I think he literally just took a spear. He dies very quickly. He does not get a death scene. He died defending Bowman, right? Oh, yes. Or he died standing next to Bowman, maybe. Yeah, he's, he's, he's sort of completing that relationship he's hard on bowman for being a bit of an outlaw and he's very straight lace and so he dies defending him all right yeah i think a topic actually a conversation about legend can't cannot be mm, i really think also geordie a conversation about legend cannot be had they're also talking about what the author uh, was going through and how he his ultimate passing now, this is just coming from the foreword in my edition. I believe in a similar foreword or afterword exists in most versions of Legend. So when David Gimmel was writing this book, and you mentioned that he decided it on a coin toss, the ending. Not exactly a, to- a coin toss. Uh, David Gimmel actually said later in an interview that 
he was struggling with cancer at the time and he told himself that if he entered remission, the heroes would survive. And if he didn't, he would then kill them off and that would be the ending. That's I mean, not quite accurate, actually. He was ooh. being tested for cancer and he had a an iffy test came back positive, um, then everyone in the fort would die. And if he came back negative, um, then everyone would, would live. It was a it was a cancer scare. But he did ultimately die of cancer, didn't he? Um, he did, and so corrections there. I'm glad to know that the full story. The version of the foreword that I have actually ends on a really sombre note. I believe it was written by his wife, who's also an accomplished author in her own right. Oh, and and her at the end of the foreword, it even says, you know, when he was writing Troy, his final book, uh, the city sadly fell. Mm. And that's the ending of the foreword, and to have still have such an accomplished career sort of footnoted by his own struggles mm-hmm. and to you know partly impart that onto the heroic fantasy that he was writing it it actually makes me slightly welled up just sort of reiterating it but it's it, i think it's worth knowing as a reader what david Gimmel yeah, was going and through it, it, it adds and it adds a lot to say that this is not really a book about war or a book about a siege it's about uh the impossible threats lying before you and persevering you know how to live knowing that you're going to die. And I think it's really nice to take that message away. And that's the story. I mean, when you look at Druss, Druss going, I've had a good life. Mm-hmm. And now I'm, I've got to fight the impossible fight. And people go, why don't you just give up? And he's like, that's not me. It's me to mm-hmm. fight the impossible fight regardless. And I love it how the main character says, I fought impossible fights in my 20s, in my 40s. And if I hadn't fought them then, I wouldn't be standing here now in my 60s. Mm-hmm. So always fight them. Because some days you do win. And sadly, some days you, you don't. And that's just part of life. It, yeah, it's an essential part of a context behind this book. So I'm glad you brought it up, Duncan. Thanks. No worries. Now, back into the next bit. I think it's time for our, uh, I think it's time for our conclusion. My conclusion is, it's a very enjoyable, straightforward book in a similar vein to like a World War II army movie you know i do know i know exactly what you mean and yeah it's it's almost enjoyable for its um its directness it is a heroic fantasy book and it's almost a key example if someone started like the ai articulation of a heroic fantasy story around a siege written in 84 and you know it's mm-hmm. you know the way Yogan has written women is problematic, and I totally understand if you did not want to read it for that. There is other heroic fantasy yeah. that has been written more recently, and even probably previously that is better on that account. Totally get that, mm-hmm. but I think it does what it set out to do competently, and I enjoyed myself. And to be brutally honest, I wouldn't mind reading another one. There we go. So, I guess it's up to me then to decide whether we do get to read another oh, one. Can I just say this? Have you actually? Do you know about the rest of the series? No, I only know that one of the books is called Waylander because Tom told me about it once. Uh, so just a bit of curiosity because I actually thought this was really interesting. Uh, so Jornea Chronicles uh, is eleven books, and I think mm. the shortest time gap between books is uh, between when books are set is like ten years, and the longest one is like a hundred okay. years. So the mm. next book chronologically. It's like a hundred years in the future. 
and mm. it kind of goes on that like we we literally just jump into the interesting bits like every <laughs> like hundred or even several decades fields and then you've got you've got two prequel trilogies a just prequel trilogy where you get his backstory mm. and the waylander prequel trilogy who i believe is meant to be the first earl of bronze and you get the backstory of I the see. armor and all that so that's how the series fans out so it's it's quite spread out you, it's not another story of wreck just in case you hate mm. that uh, backs you if you're thinking well, i hate wreck that makes it more tempting <laughs> tonkin it's time for me to choose the next book oh, i don't think i'm reading another journal and okay i'm really conflicted because i promised you revenge and i will have it but i'm not sure what form it is to take now i've got to live with the anxiety so, which is uh yeah every end of every episode i'm, like, I'm not allowed to pick i'm not allowed to pick the next book in the scholomance nope so i think it's up to me to pick a book which i think you're going to love and i also want it to be one which just works for the series you know for our podcast so i'm gonna pick two books Excuse me, that is not the rules. I've got a busy yeah, life, mate. Yeah, yeah, But I think, I think, you know how we sometimes do mini episodes? Yeah. I'm going to give you a book. It's 28 pages long. It's a novella. Oh, hello. You can handle that. Definitely. And it's a it's a Conan pastiche. You know, it's des- it's designed to be a pastiche of Conan stories. Oh, I'm very excited now. Yeah, you, yeah. So for that reason, I'm going to meet you in the middle, okay? I'm going to pick a mini a mini story for us to do a bonus episode on. And then the week after that, we're going to read a proper book. And I'm going to let you pick that book, Duncan. I'm going to give you two choices. Okay. They are by the same author at different stages in her career. The first being her debut, the one that introduced her to the world, and the one I which I think is probably more in line with your tastes in books. And the other is her, by far her most successful and iconic book, and the one which has shaped its genre more than any other. So, you can pick the one you th- I think you're going to like more, and the one which is, like, more significant to the canon. We will be reading both these series at some point, because they're not in the same series. So, the bonus episode, Duncan, yep. is The Eye of Argon <gasps> by Jim Tice. <sighs> The most famously bad fantasy short story ever written, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Yes, it certainly is. Okay. And your choice, Duncan, are between Sarah J. Mass's two iconic books, Throne of Glass, the one I think is personally more up your alley, and A Court of Thorns and Roses. Well, I think I would have to pick... For the interest of expanding my understanding of the fantasy genre, which I love, will be A Court of Thorns and Roses. Duncan, all of my ex-girlfriends are now very excited. It's almost all of their favourite book. Alrighty, mate. I'm prepared for it. But I'm also excited to read Eye of Argon. And if anyone listening is excited to hear our thoughts on the Eye of Argon and A Court of Thorns and Roses or Legend or any other book we have covered or yet to cover... Please feel free to tell us your opinions at our Instagram, Is This Just Fantasy Podcast, or reach out to us at our Gmail, Is This Just Fantasy Podcast at gmail.com. Love to hear your thoughts and opinions. I can't believe I'm going to read The Eye of Argon. I'm going to try and remember this as revenge, but I also realize that I have to read it as well. 
Maybe I just need to give Duncan a book report. Like, he has to come. Mate, I'm actually so excited. My main thoughts is how I'm going to find it. Probably online. Yes. On the high seas. I don't think there's a way to purchase it legally. Like, I, for one thing, <laughs> I think Jim Tice did not like the fact that it was famous. Um, and two, he's also dead. So he's not getting any money out of it. Farewell. Looking forward yeah. to it. Till next time, Geordie. Till next time, everyone, with the Eye of Argon. Bye. Goodbye.